Hello, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by your favorite people from Philadelphia. I'm here with Connor, Dave, and Christine. Tori, sadly, is not with us. Instead, she is busy figuring something really awesome out within the marine biology field. We don't know what caused this random career switch, but you know what? We're supportive. We love you, Tori. Um, And we miss you. Hopefully, she'll be back next week. Um, but I am so happy to be back with my butter fam here. And, um, I'd love to hear, have you guys been watching anything cool, done anything cool <laughs> in quarantine? Uh, I have a Hannibal update. Oh, so a couple episodes ago, I mentioned I started Hannibal and was like kind of on the fence. But I was one episode away from when they introduced Jillian Anderson, and I was like, obviously, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> so, Game changer. It definitely, it definitely got a lot better. Um, I'm done with season season one, and I think they flesh Hannibal out a little bit. I'm gonna be okay with Hugh Dancy. You know, we can't have it all. It's fine. He's okay. <laughs> but it, it's definitely getting better. So I'm gonna roll into season two. It's like in treatment meets Hannibal. And I love it when Hannibal goes to Jillian. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. I've been um, not watching a whole, whole lot of like new stuff, but playing a lot of the new Assassin's Creed game, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, uh, which is about the Norse and Viking invasion of England in like the 17 and uh, like 750 CE. Uh, and so that's been really cool. Kind of, I don't know a whole lot about Viking history, so it's been cool to like be immersed in that world. And the game is a lot of fun. So that's kind of what I've been putting a lot of time into. I mean, as I've been speaking about all of this past month, it's just been it's just been the Spanos. So I'm I'm still figuring out what to do with myself. Um, some series that I want to return to um, now, having access to uh, HBO Max. Uh, would probably include True Detective, um, at, at the very least season one, um, which I really enjoyed and haven't seen in a couple of years. Uh, season two was a train wreck. Uh, so I might go back and watch that for sport at some point. Um, and then the third season I still haven't seen, which I heard is actually kind of a return to form and is actually a really good, uh, really solid season after the disappointment of season two. So I'll probably go back and watch some of that. Um, and I'm also looking forward to going back and rewatching a lot of Mr. Show. Um, sketch comedy show with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. Imagine that that'll come up later. Um, but uh, yeah, also a, a show that uh, I think um, maybe a lot of people younger than me uh, wouldn't be as into uh, a lot of the humor is pointedly dated, um, but uh, a really good absurdist sketch show when it doesn't veer into that, that sort of stuff. So um, I'll be going back to that. I think probably pretty shortly. It's always interesting to me what we go back to. Um, There are things that I have gone back to that I thought I never would. For instance, um, I rewatched Logan Lucky the other day and like I I liked it when I first saw it. I thought it was really funny. I watched it again and I found myself enjoying it so much more. And there is one part where um, so... Um, Adam Driver's character has a prosthetic arm (laughs) and I don't want to spoil it in case anybody hasn't seen it, but, um, (laughs) it gets sucked off (laughs) and like sucked off into a machine and, 
Um, it's a real Furiosa moment. Yeah, kind of. And he, there's like a, a pause after it happens. And then he just says in like the straightest face in a Southern accent, you sucked my arm off. I <laughs> genuinely lost my mind this time around. Like I laughed the first time, but like, <laughs> I could not control myself. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes you have to watch the thing at the right moment. And, you know, I actually considered putting this movie in my um, top 20 for our 100 movie recommendations. I decided to go with a different Adam Driver film, but I thought about it, which is a nice segue into a movie that I did put into my top 20, which is Little Women, um, directed by Greta Gerwig. So this came out in 2019. Um, just a quick synopsis of the movie before we get into our thoughts, feelings. Um, so I stole this from IMDb. Apologies, but it was said so well. Why fix it if it's not broken? So uh, Louisa May Alcott's autobiographical account of her life with her three sisters in Concord, Massachusetts in the 1860s. Uh, with their father fighting in the American Civil War, sisters Joe, Meg, Amy, and Beth are at home with their mother, a very outspoken woman for her time. The story tells of how the sisters grow up, find love, and find their place in the world. That is Little Women in a Nutshell. So, uh, questions for you folks. Uh, the first one is, was this, so there has been many adaptations of this movie. This was its seventh film adaptation. So has anyone really? seen? Yeah, seventh. Um, has anyone seen this or any of the other adaptations before? I have seen none of Little Women. No Little Women have been seen. <laughs> Uh, I thought that I had, but uh, <laughs> but um, actually, I was confusing it. Uh, I think the 1994 version with Winona Ryder. I think I was confusing that with another film called Little Princesses, oh. um, which is also kind of a period piece, um, which is very good, incidentally. But um, so no, I, I I'm not familiar with uh, Alcott's book, and I have not seen adaptations of this prior. I owned the 94 on VHS heavy rotation in the Rayburn household. Uh, and then I saw the 2019 in theaters last December, but haven't seen like the Catherine Hepburn one. I, I like, I was also surprised when I was reading about coverage of the remake of the 2019, that there were so many iterations of it that I don't think I'd ever seen. Yeah, I know. I feel similarly, Christine. Um, the 1994 one, God, I must have watched that. I can't even tell you how many times. I love, love that movie so much. And I was sort of like, oh, here we go again. Once I found out that um, Greta Gerwig was doing her version. Boy, am I glad I went to see it. And I also did see it in theaters too, Christine. It was the last movie I saw in theaters. <laughs> so, um, and I actually saw it on New Year's Day. So that is very sad. Um, but, um, I'm so excited to talk about this movie with you all. Um, Dave, I loved your running commentary the other night, uh, really gave me life. Um, so I'm interested to see everyone's thoughts. So, um, again, it's following sisters, Joe, Megan, Amy, um, throughout their time as young adolescents and breaching into adulthood. Um, just kind of like 
quick facts about the movie. So I said before, directed by Greta Gerwig. It was also written by her too. Of course, like the screenplay adaptation, not the book. Um, and it stars Shersha Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon, Laura Dern, Timothy Chalamet, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, Bob Odenkirk, like so many people I could go on, but I'm not gonna. Um, the budget was about 40 million. And at the um, international uh, box office, it made about 219 million. So I would consider that a success. Um, some things that I, I did some research on Greta Gerwig and just a little bit more about this movie. Um, this is Gerwig's second solo film ever, the first being Lady Bird, and both have been nominated for several Oscars in different categories, which, you know, if you're Greta Gerwig, like, damn, <laughs> that is awesome. And I think at one point she was like the only female director nominated for um, an Oscar in like the best director category, which is a problem in and of itself. Um women not being represented enough and then it being a white woman only being represented anyway. Um, but in order to like really understand Louisa May Alcott, um, Gerwig used her personal journals and her other writings to um, really pen the script and to get the voice. But one of my favorite tidbits of information is that one of Joe's beautiful monologues in the movie came from a conversation that Greta had with Meryl Streep about women in the 1860s and how restrictive it was. So I loved that. And I think uh, Gerwig took a lot. She took some creative license with this iteration of Little Women and it was for the better. Um, something else that I also really loved learning, and I learned this today. So the costume designer, she knocked it out of the park. Her name is Jacqueline Duran. Um, her goal was to make the clothing um, historically accurate, but also um, she wanted people in modern times to like covet the wardrobe and to want to wear it. Um, so their clothes were a mix between like the the stuffy Victorian and modern. Um, she used some inspiration from Bob Dylan. Um, all very, very cool. Not just for Lori, but also for Joe. I think that is so awesome. And um, something I love about this movie so much is it... Uh, um, it's attention to detail, especially when it comes to colors. And the sisters all have their own colors and it matures throughout their lifetime. So you can kind of like check in exactly where they are in the timeline. Um, and I just think that that's so thoughtful and what a, a fantastic way to tell a story. But um, obviously I love this movie a lot. I put it in my top 20, um, but I'd love to hear what you guys thought about it. So Connor, Dave, not having seen this movie before, really any iterations of it, what'd you think? I absolutely loved this movie. Like 100% hands down. Uh, this has been a pretty crazy week, pretty crazy couple weeks. And so it was so refreshing to have a movie just kind of sweep me away. And like when things are sort of pulling at the edges of my attention, I would like instantly be brought back um, to watching the movie. I'm a sucker also for nonlinear storytelling. So I think instead of being a, you know, instead of being a straight line, this movie is more of an elliptical of all, you know, kind of like I'm a Matt, I was thinking of the solar system, of all the different planets, like intersecting with each other, like the characters, um, 
yeah, this movie absolutely blew me away. I did. I have not seen Lady Bird. It's been like sitting on my Netflix or Amazon queue forever. Um, so that's been one I've been wanting to check out. And yeah, Little Women surprisingly kind of blew me away. And it was interesting because I feel like I'm usually like kind of in the know with like a lot of like major movies that come out. I knew nothing about this movie. I thought this was a Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, Victorian English kind of movie, but uh surprised to see like a very american movie with also a very international cast which was kind of cool too um so just initial thoughts like two huge thumbs up for little women nice uh dave what did you think well as i said i uh mistook mistaken attentions i thought i'd seen an interpretation of this before but that's an entirely different story um so went into a blind um yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really care for it. That's fair. No, it's not. I just wanted to let that sit there for a second and see your reactions. And <laughs> I just wanted to say, I'm sorry. No, this, I'm just joking around. This movie's fantastic. It's, uh, it's a total knockout. Um, I mean, wall to wall. Everything about this movie is like a well-oiled machine. The acting is amazing. The, the direction and production design are like really remarkable, like some of the best I've seen, uh, maybe in all of 2019. Um, the 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 use of music that kind of keeps this continuous momentum. There's almost always a score in a way that it, it doesn't really tell emotionally telegraph what's going on, but it enhances what's going on a little bit in a way. Um, its sense of like, yeah, Connor, as you touched on, nonlinear storytelling in a very, you know, linear story, having gone back and, and read a synopsis of the book, um, is a really cool interpretation. And I really appreciate that it drew kind of a meta reality into it, uh, as concerns, uh, Alcott. Um, and I think that's something I'm really excited to return to talking about. So I, I think everything about this movie is, is pretty much worthy of compliment. I'm looking forward to di- diving in. Ooh, okay, great. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Although I would have accepted. <laughs> we're all very nice to each other. And after doing a hundred and what, four episodes, like we're all. Yeah. Yeah. But just to be clear, no, it's, it's fantastic. I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Christine, as someone who also loved the 1994 version, how did this measure up to it? What are your thoughts? Oh, it's immensely better, but I, this was a very important rewatch for me just because I think I'm so happy that I saw it again and that we have a chance to talk about it because when I saw it in theaters, it was like riding this wave of like the biggest hype for a movie ever. No, not ever riding very similar hype waves. And I was ready to just be like blown away in the theaters. And I was kind of upset at myself that I wasn't in the theaters just like ready to, or that I wasn't rocked by this movie because I was ready to be rocked. And then I kind of sat with it and I thought about it a lot. And then I was just like, okay, down the road, I'll rewatch it. And I rewatched it and I, I'm so glad that we're talking about it because it really opened up so many wonderful things that I that I saw in this movie. And that like, I was like, for a story that had to be reinterpreted, Gerwig just brilliantly broke it apart and reassembled it in such a fresh way. And I, and um, yeah, and yeah, I think, 
in, in ways that I'm sure we'll, we'll go into, but it was like an interesting feeling rewatching a movie that I was like, oh, why didn't I just like, because I enjoyed it when I watched it. And, I, and when I walked out of the theaters in like the December I watched it, I was like, the second half was amazing. But the first half, like, ooh, I don't know. But rewatching it was like, gave me a chance to actually recognize what Gerwig was doing in shuffling through, like, I think the 94 version is, a, it, I don't think, it is a linear progression of events. So each moment that's sort of solidified in Little Women history, the, mo the burning of the manuscript, the falling in the ice, the 94 version, it like, I would always watch it. I'd be like, oh, this is the end of the world. This is like so impactful. And it felt like this remake was sort of just shuffling through those episodes and it didn't feel the weight that I remembered it feeling. But then I was like, no, no, no. Gerwig is, is using memory and like the gloss of memory of childhood and constructing it in a way in which it, it, is, it, it is just sort of this capsule of memory and the real emotional weight and the real sense of mourning and loss and growth is happening like in the present day. And that's what that rewatch really reinforced in my mind. And I was like, yeah, it would like, if you're going to take on this, like tale as old as time or whatever that sh she decided to do it that way. And it was, it was really brilliant, a really brilliant decision. So I'm so glad that we're, that we're picking through it and talking about it because this is a really fun, fun rewatch. One of my um, favorite other movies podcast beside our own is called uh, from the YouTube channel Lessons of the Screenplay, which is a fantastic channel and a really great podcast. And they end every episode thinking, you know, saying, well, what's the biggest lesson that, you know, as screenwriters, we've learned from this movie. And I was thinking about that question when watching Little Women of how do you have like five protagonists in a movie? How do you juggle um, giving everybody fulfilled arcs, having every, you know, resolution kind of everything you want out of one protagonist and spreading that out across an entire family and i thought you know this is a textbook example of how to do non-linearity and having multiple main characters um feeling fulfilling yeah both of those things uh like to such a such an amazing degree it, it definitely allows that um each individual character kind of shines and has their own um, their own story or, or like micro section of the story um, in, a, in a way that feels really naturally balanced because it, it is in, you know, the story of a family and it is a story of how their shared memories build and shape their, their personalities and their individual experiences unified through family. And um, it, it does a great job of, of balancing a lot, a lot of, a lot of storylines really cleverly in the way that like, as you're saying, yeah, there's this sort of like um, fractured timeline that um, that kind of hinges moments like several years down the road and pivots them and pairs them really appropriately against uh, similarly emotional experiences that they had, that I had growing up that not only create a common emotional theme between the two uh, past and present, but also really um, explain their growth and maturity in the face of those different emotions and situations over time. Yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation because um in the 1994 version at least, we don't get 
the stories of Meg, Amy, and Beth, really. We only see it through Joe's eyes. So, and, and I mean, like, you know, some of the, the big parts are still there, right? So, like, Meg gets married, <laughs> Beth dies, um, and Amy goes off to Europe and comes back um, married. And um, so, so those big parts remain the same, but you learn the context around those moments. And, you know, that was something that was always missing. Um, my favorite character has always been Amy. And it was because I knew there was more to Amy than what we saw in 94. And um, what Gerwig did for her, I was like ready to bow down and praise because it was like, yes, thank you for like making her into an actual character. And we can understand why these things happened because it like, it really is weird. There are a lot of things about the 94 movie that when like, as an adult, when you actually like think back to it, you're like, ooh, uh, that doesn't work out so well. But like what you're pointing to are things that Gerwig did. Like we didn't have... Um, so much more about Meg and her family and all of that and Amy's time in France. And I mean, we don't get all that much more of Beth because, well, you know, Beth sadly dies. Um, but we get more of Marmee too. This movie definitely gives Beth more dimension than Claire Danes's quivering chin, which I watch in the 94 version every time she dies. And that quivering cry, Claire Danes' chin, I'm like, I'm in tears. <laughs> but Eliza Scanlon... That role is it's a little more fleshed out. Not not a whole lot, a little bit. Yeah, I was gonna add, I mean, I've not seen the other version, but like uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting about Beth's character is that we're we're treated to so much depth as far as um as far as the characters' maturity and motivations of young Joe, Amy, and Meg early on. Um Whereas Beth kind of remains sort of like an emotional glue to, for the family, but it's still sort of like sidelined. Uh, and I really appreciate that it, it it took the time to give her character a lot of breathing room and um, attention when we're first discovering um, as she's over at the house playing the piano, her her talent and her passion for music. And I think metering it out that way with no, with no understanding of like former interpretations, it, it I imagined it was probably one of those things where that character is more thoroughly sidelined in, in, in other interpretations, but it was really nice to see them shuffled in in a quiet way initially, but still take the time to really rev that character up once the proportions of the other characters are established. She's definitely used as a plot device in the 94. Uh, and like, her, yeah, her death is like this, I mean, it's, it's extremely pivotal in the story but she's not given much development. I would say that in this version, you, it's, oh God, the scenes with her and Chris Cooper, Chris oh. Cooper on the stairs, listening to her play. Oh, so beautiful. It's gorgeous. I would say as far as like her interworkings, like what's going on in her brain, we still, at least I still didn't get a whole lot, but she plays a wonderful role in scenes. She's, she's given the comedic, lines like she's actually sometimes for a, for a character that's always been known for her death there's some wonderful searing remarks she says that are supposed to be a lovely virtuous beth but the but eliza scanlon's delivery is so deadpan 
that it works as a co- comedic moment. And I know Gerwig did that on purpose because her like bread and butter is comedy. And so she really uses Beth, I think, in a really fresh way of not just focusing on her illness and on her death, but giving her some wonderful, I wish I could remember what lines, but there's just moments like at the dinner table where she'll say something and it's supposed to be funny, even though it's like supposed to sort of be her virtue, but it's, but it's kind of dark and kind of funny, but anyhow, yeah, I, I really preferred Beth. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Beth's relation to Chris Cooper's character, Mr. Lawrence, because really this movie is just a whole series of two-handers, of two-person conversations that last two minutes to, you know, sometimes 10 minutes. And we learn so much about, you know, how we should feel about Beth through Mr. Lawrence's lens of having lost a young daughter, roughly her age. And so his emotional weight that, you know, as a human, you know, we understand of, you know, losing a child. We put that onto Beth through him, which makes her death all the more tragic, especially paired with her recovering the first time. Mm -hmm. So as Dave, you brought up this perfect, like, it's as if every single scene was written on an index card. And then she just on a big, you know, cork board, just move them all around to figure out what's the best way to really line up or, you know, to pay off these emotional beats instead of killing her in the first hour. And then you forget about her for the rest of the movie. She did it's, have the corkboard moment of laying the page. I was like, oh, this movie barely gets away with the let me rearrange all of the pages. Of my well, it, it reminds me of a behind the scenes clip of Chris Nolan for Inception, where he like, I, or I believe it, maybe it's Interstellar, where it's sort of like, he like draws out this huge timeline and like Gerwig does a better Nolan than Nolan's done maybe since Memento of like nonlinear, like the Prestige has some of those elements as well. But I mean, I feel like kicking Nolan's ass when it comes to like story structure, at least recent Nolan. I mean, this, this fractured and and intersecting paired storylines within the same chronology, but you know, paired against each other um, at key moments of like, you know, tension and development. I don't know that I've ever seen it done this well. Um, I mean, like it, it reminds me of like, almost like the idea of like, what George Lucas originally claimed the prequel idea is like, oh, it's ring theory. So every big moment cycles back to another moment. And it's like, that that can work. That works here. And it's incredible. Yeah. And I think that you can probably see that the most clearly with Beth and her death and um, the way that like Joe is watching over her and Joe wakes up. And in the first time, um, you know, you see that Beth's okay. And she's sitting at the kitchen table with Marmy and Hannah. And then the second time isn't the case. And, you know, Marmy, like Laura Dern, the, I thought it was a really interesting choice to bring in Laura Dern for this character because I always felt like, like all the others, that Marmy was like very unexplored and set to the side. Like this is really Joe's show and just Laura Dern breaking down and like uh, Joe giving her a hug. Like I started weeping in the theater and I can't say that ever happened before and it's because we just got to see so much more of her and learn so much more and I think um you know something that's really beautiful and everyone's kind of touched on this a little bit um 
how you tell the timelines apart and how you do it is through color. And, um, you know, when we are in the past, everything is really bright and like hazy just a little bit, a little bit of sun flares, you know, all of that. And then when we get to present day, it feels colder, a lot more um, like blues and rougher fabrics, things like that until we get to the final scene. And this is what I love so much about this. So we get, uh, Dave, I, I think you mentioned this, we get the meta of Alcott's life when um, Joe is having that argument of whether or not the main character is going to get married. And so at the very end, we have a very bright, warm, a sun flurry scene at the school, but the sisters are all wearing blue. And it's ambiguous because you don't know how the book is actually ending because you can see that Greta is changing the narrative, changing it to be what Alcott maybe always wanted it to be. But does it actually happen? And I, like, brilliant. That's, that's a really wild ambiguity at the end in the sense that, yeah, it's um, what we see is is... Uh, Joe, the character Joe, you know, established as they do in the book, establishing the school and they're married um, and the sisters are there. They're they're teaching, you know, uh, boys and girls at this at, at the school uh, painting and writing and all the crafts that they so appreciated and so defined their character. Um, but we're also seeing at the end the character of Joe within that context, witnessing the publishing of the book, Little Women, which I thought was kind of interesting in a way that it, it the the title on it and I made sure to rewind to check was was it still accredited the book Little Women to Joe's character rather than to Alcott, um, which I think is maybe just a way of kind of like broadly explaining to audiences what's going on because maybe otherwise the connection might might not be there, um, but I think it might it, it might be my only thought on the movie that that's something I would reconsider is actually having it be accredited to Alcott at the end when the book is being published, because then it further establishes the distinction between the fictional narrative that we're treated to and the meta narrative that bookends the film. But I don't think it's a problem either. That being said. But in the, in the story, Joe March does publish a book like that is part of the narrative. Right. It was, was it Little Women, though? Was it like, you know, kind of like a meta book in the sense that it's referencing itself or like... That's a good question. I'm just imagining... So Gabriel Byrne plays like the mysterious German writer, philosopher at the end of the 94. I've never read the book, so I don't know. I'm just basing this on the 94 version. But he's he he's like helps her with her manuscripts or whatever. But that's a good question. I don't know whether it's titled, but you, yeah, you'd like more of like a removing it and being like, this is Alcott. This is her story. It's, it definitely already does what I'm describing in, in terms of that reveal. So it's not, again, it's not a problem. Uh, I just think it would have been interesting if it went that extra step in defining and acknowledging the distinction between the meta reality and the, the fiction that we're treated to in the film. Although again, it's not a problem. It totally works. It's just a kind of a thought. No, I feel similarly. And I think, I think it's a throwback to when Joe is selling her kind of like dime novels, essentially. And like, well, what name do you want this under? And she's like, none, I don't want my mom knowing about this. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's like her finally 
finding her voice and being proud of her work. Um, but that all being said, I want to talk about Joe as a character. So, you know, in the 94 version, you just want to be Joe so much. And the way Shersha plays her is exactly right. But I think Joe is an extremely problematic character. And I'm wondering, like, what you all thought about it and whether or not, like, you had any problems with Joe. Do you mean kind of like problematic in general related to the source material or Gerwig's take on Joe in this movie? So I have in my notes here, it's um, feminism versus bad feminism. So um, I think the the marches, um, you know, Marmy and their father, I think that they are incredibly progressive people. And I mean, Aunt March, played by Meryl Streep, says the reason why the father lost all of his money is because he educated his four daughters. That is incredibly progressive for, you know, what, like the 1850s, 1860s. And so, and particularly how Marmy lives her life too. Like, that is a version of feminism there. And like Joe has clearly benefited from that and has clearly like used her privilege, you know, whether or not they actually have money, they, they do, right. They do. And we can see that um, juxtaposition with the family that they help out that have nothing. Um, And so I think Joe really doesn't acknowledge her privilege, but uses it in a lot of ways. But and, and you know, I love her so much where she's like, women don't have to fit into this role. They don't have to do that. Right. She's like, she's literally blazing a trail. But the interaction she has with Meg right before Meg's about to get married, I was like, that is it. This is the like white toxic feminism. This is it. And I just, I appreciate that seen so much and i was wondering like if any of you thought the same or if there and and if you do were there any other scenes where that shined through so it's like you're identifying like joe imposing her values onto other people and her standards of what it means to be like a woman essentially and like making other people feel like shit if they don't yeah. value those like Meg being like no I want to get married I, I want to start a family and things like that and through the lens of Joe's eyes you can understand that she's sort of dis- she's obviously very dismissive of that choice that her sister has made um I'm so glad you've pointed this out Sam because yeah it's like when we think of little women we really think of Joe's story she's the creator she's sort of the thrust of the narrative and now that you're saying this, I'm like, you are such an astute viewer. I wonder if other people would pick up on the fa- how problematic Joe's perspective is. Like, like if, and it almost made makes me, no, it, not almost, it does make me want Gerwig to have pushed that even further because I would like to know if Gerwig, like how intentional her, characterization of Joe was in showing problematic aspects of how she relates to her her sisters and like how she doesn't acknowledge the middle-class white privilege that they, that they exist within, Um, which kind of gets to some other points that I think you wanted to talk a a little bit about, which we can touch on later. But like, 
I'm so glad you brought that up because it's like, I think Gerwig could have driven that home a little bit more because I still think for the most part, by the end of the story that Joe is sort of like living this fulfillment of like creation, this sort of like what's supposed to be this sort of like fulfillment of like her idea of what she wants from her life when she might've brought other, or like brought other people. Yeah. I, I, other thought, like, I'm, I'm glad you brought that. It's, it's definitely gotten me, gotten me thinking about how the characters ultimately are tied, tidied up by the end of the movie. Well, one thing that I think is, is kind of nice in Gerwig's uh, handling of that material is that it does take the time to, though, though Joe is, is the central vehicle for the movie in the fictional sense, obviously in the metafictional sense, it's actually uh, Alcott. Um, but you know, kind of blurs the lines between the two a little bit in, in interesting ways. At any rate, though, um, it, it really allows a lot of time, um, as we discussed versus other interpretations, as I'm understanding it, um, for for the other sisters to kind of become more developed and for their characterization to become more flushed out and their agency more developed, um, especially as concerns those kind of life decisions. Because the the one thing that I wrote down that Meg says in that conversation is just because my dreams are different from yours doesn't make them unimportant. Um, which is really interesting too, because it would be one thing if ultimately Joe was still, you know, um, the, the only figure that we emotionally rested our hat on as far as, you know, feminist themes and overtones. But we also see that Meg has chosen that life and is working really hard at it in a difficult situation. So I, I think it's, it's actually pretty well balanced and metered out in that way. Although I think it's, it does point out that Joe is, has these problematic tendencies of projecting their own idealized version of autonomy onto other people, but it allows those other people breathing room to push back in a conversational way. And I, it's, can I just say, maybe it's Emma Watson's performance. I don't think she was the right choice for that role. I wasn't as I, and maybe it's because everyone else's performances, like Florence Pugh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, Liza, like, were They're elevated great, yeah. it to such a degree that I think Emma Watson's performance. Well, I, I thought maybe that's where the sort of did like flattening of characterization could be maybe yeah. not as weighted, like weighted storyline as I would have hoped for. I really liked her casting because Emma Watson is this enormous movie star, but yet she's the one who is not Joe. She's Meg, who is like, I'm going to, even though in the you know, real world, I'm this huge, mega, ultra-rich movie star mm-hmm. that everybody knows, but I'm going to settle for this more quaint life. I'm not going to go to New York. I'm not going to be this actress. So I kind of view that as like playing against her sort of type, or at least, you know, the audience, what we know her as. That's kind of, you know, how I saw it. I guess Hermione is kind of a Joe, but... I don't find her very compelling as her play either. So. <laughs> you cast Emma Watson, you cast her as a Belle character. That's you, something like, I got to deal with. Like a lead person, you know? <laughs> Well, with that, going back to that scene, like that's one of the most pivotal scenes in the whole movie with Joe and Meg. And it really, you know, Gerwig drills down into the reason why Joe kind of espouses this potentially toxic feminism is that she's insecure about her family breaking apart. Um, she's, you know, at the end of that scene, it's, I just don't want you to leave. 
I'm scared for you to leave. Even though she's just moving down the road, she's still staying in Concord, but this is such a huge symbolic moment of the oldest child breaking apart the family unit as she knew it for her entire life. So I really think it was so smart to let that scene play out for five more minutes to allow Joe to, you know, for us to see Joe kind of announcing that realization of in the moment of, I just don't want you to leave. I don't want my sister to leave the family. There's also kind of an interesting moment later in the film where Joe uh, with, um, with Marmy is uh, with Dern is having a conversation about how, you know, there, there is this sort of like personal sense of like, compromising one thing for another almost like you know her that her in spite of her uh her efforts to um to trudge forth to maintain autonomy and and independence that she is ultimately lonely um which is kind of a really interesting a really interesting intersection of that character's principles and what they feel they need she does not seem terribly happy married to bob odenkirk like you see moments of concern, but for me, it felt more out of familial duty. I meant more for Joe, but, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, with with, Dern, with the mom character, it's like she made the choices she made. And, aunt, you know, the aunt character at the end, Meryl Streep brings up, well, she threw away her life marrying you, my brother. You know, so she's also, you know, God, I would love to see another like two hours of this movie and these characters, which is maybe like the best compliment you can give anything. I just want to see more and you know, be more in this world and understand more. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? Like the more and more I'm listening to you guys, the more I'm thinking like, no, being a bad feminist is core to Joe's personality because I'm thinking her antagonist throughout almost the whole movie is Amy. And we're finally able to flesh out Amy. And it's because Amy is everything Joe is fighting against. And there's this beautiful scene with Amy and Aunt March where Aunt March is like, hey, come in here from painting. You are the last hope your family has. So you better marry Rich. What an unbelievable thing to put on the shoulders of a young girl. Um, and Amy takes that with grace and she's like, this is my responsibility. And she has that moment when she's talking to Lori, that's like, you get to choose, you'll be fine. This is, um, the like economic thing that I've got to worry about. This is what I have to do. And we never had that before. You know, Amy goes off to Europe with Aunt March and then just comes back married to Lori. That was just phenomenal, showing you that just because Joe is smart and she's the the writer doesn't mean that the others don't have this capability. And I and they even show it again at the very end when um I can't remember the context, but they're it's at the very very end and they're walking and um, Amy's like you know what? I don't see it that way. I see it. And then just goes on to say something so profound. And it was just like, yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is it the, is it the line where it's like, Joe is like, oh, writing represents importance. And Amy's like, no, writing create, it's like what's written about creates, is that the scene you're thinking yeah. about? Mm-hmm. Where she completely, and, and it's like one of the greatest recognize like moments of recognition about like a driving message of like the of the movie um yeah going back to one of your points sam as well about amy's characterization amy is also a creator she's a painter and based on the like 
pieces that you you see her working on, she's really talented. But like, it's a Gerwig also taps into the, sort of the competition of, of artistry and of creativity and like like sibling competition and and Amy being like, oh, I'm mediocre. I've come to Paris and I've recognized that I'm like not that good. But like, you can tell that in some like sphere, she's really good. And she's she's not only like sort of recognizing what she has to do as far as a woman, like getting married and like sort of this whole economic uh, proposition of marriage. But she also is trying to figure out what is she, what is she like as an artist. And so Joe, it's like, I bring that up to say, Joe is not the only creator and artist. You also see a facet of Amy as artist trying to wrestle with like what she deems as her mediocrity and being like, well, I guess I got to marry rich, which is also such a great dimensional way to present that character. It's not just competition of like relationship. It's competition of like, of like artistry too. They're not just fighting over Lori, which is definitely a big point of it. It's also like, she says, I'm, I'm sick of being number two. Like I've always been number two to my sister. And there's something really great about that too, in in the sense that I mean, in terms of yeah, as you're saying, like dueling creators within a family within you know an an era where it's I mean it's not entirely you know unrelated to now, but in an era where marriage was you know such an economic as they say in the movie, it's such an economic proposal, which we see Amy discussing with um, Lori as she's literally packing up her art and like giving giving that up because she knows that. She she's taking on that for the family in a sense, which is pointed out even more so by Auntie, who um, you know keeps pressuring her that she needs to save the family by marriage, and then dismissively says after that seemingly is accepted by her, "You can go back and do your little painting." So it, it, it's it, it is a really kind of interesting push and pull between those two characters, uh, not not only highlighted by you know their relationship with Lori, but their different passions and dreams and how how they're willing to compromise those for the sake of the family in a certain regard and give up something of themselves in service of that. Gosh, there's just so many layers to all of this that didn't exist before. And I'm just like so grateful, I think, for the story I love so much to get that much better and these characters just becoming like really three-dimensional. Um one other thing that I, I really wanted to talk about when it comes to this movie is its whiteness. And we see one person of color the whole movie, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking about the timeline, so it's Massachusetts, it's in the 1860s. Um, the father fought for the union in the civil war and he's making his way back home after an illness. And there's only one moment where we see a person of color. And it's when we're dealing with this like um, organization working for um, the kind of like destitute folks, like the homeless folks. And Marmy says something along the lines of, you know, I'm glad the war is finally over. I've never been so ashamed of this country. And the the black woman that she's standing next to is like, you should have always been ashamed of this country. And I I loved that moment and how it kind of harkens to um a league of their own when they have that moment where um you know Gina Davis goes to get the the baseball back and oh a woman uh, a black woman she like tosses it back to her and it's that recognition of 
we can do this too. We just don't have these opportunities. And so like, I loved that Gerwig put it in there, but it, it also made me think of, well, why didn't you put more in there? Like, why didn't we like make this like a, like a black family? Like, I, I think that the historically accurate argument is just a way of keeping Hollywood white. And I, I said to myself, this is the last period piece I ever want to see where the entire main cast is white. Like, I, I don't want to see anymore. And, and not for the sake of just having, you know, um, people of color, but because of how it could enrich the story. Like, can you imagine if we were dealing with the, the marches, um, but it was a Black family instead? Like, yeah, it changes the 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 story a little bit, but like, so what? I think that Gerwig tries just like that scene you you point uh, point out, Sam. Gerwig attempts like in, to insert moments of critique, but I I don't think she goes far. It's like if she wanted to keep the st- like the marches like an all white cast, she could have. I think gone even further to like critique it's like she's already putting a modern sort of deconstructed uh storytelling method on the story why not go even a step further like the she she mentions that that conversation in the classroom with amy um when this girl's like your family benefits too from slave labor basically your the marches are complicit um northern white families are benefiting from this Horrid system. Um, there was a moment, I can't remember who says that, where somebody says, Oh, the March sisters sure love their causes. It like she's like hinting at some critique of like an upper middle class white feminine feminism, but it's like it's just in drops. And I feel like if she wanted to take this seriously, she could have really just as she did it with a narrative. Uh, sort of a modern narrative take and deconstruction on like the the trope of oh all stories about women need to end in marriage and her pre- presenting that wonderfully uh, ambiguous ending and like basically disrupting that like expect like sexist expectation of a story I think she c- maybe could have like driven home a little bit more of a critique of the March's worldview. Um, being a white family, living in that period, like a supposedly liberal Massachusetts family. Um, and because by the end, I think even as Gerwig presents these sort of dimensional flaws of all of her characters and with, you know, edges and rough edges. And as Sam, you've really pulled apart the problematic aspects of Joe, which has given me a lot of thought too. I still think that there's this sort of glossy sheen over the story where you want to be the mall, you want to be in that family. And it's like, it's like Gerwig still wants there to be this sort of like glow to the story because she does, I think you said and said this in your notes, Sam, she does love these characters and these sisters. But I think if she really wanted to go the full nine yards to put an insightful modern view on this story there could have been some more incisive critiques about really what these characters represent and and I think you you brought you you brought this up Sam kind of like 
what it means to like be a deemed a universal story about women, like, and the assumptions of universal, universal, universality, I can't even say that word, of little women. And it's like women authors, like black women who have written stories about coming of age tales. I, I'm just referencing this article, this wonderful op-ed that this writer, Caitlin Greenidge wrote. Um, and she identifies books like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, The Bluest Eye, uh, works of Virginia Hamilton, Octavia Butler, have all these tales of sisterhood coming of age, uh, but they don't, she says, they don't possess the assumption of lingua franca that little women has given in cultural conversations. So it's like, where people ask like, oh, like, you know, it's like sex in the city, you know, are you a Samantha? It's like this sort of like idea of sort of universality and representation of womanhood when it's a very narrow and like, white centric view of like what a universal story is when there's so many other stories which to go off on that <laughs> tangent but I think it begs the question of like should just new stories be told it's like Greta Gerwig took on a really hard story as in like <laughs> been told a million times it's about a like a white family what more is there to say she added her own spin but then it's like at this point we're in 2021, what stories should really be told? <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I, like, when I was re-watching this movie, I could not help but think about Bridgerton. And, you know, the show is what it is. I think, I, I loved it. And I think it's it has its problems, and it certainly has its problems when it comes to um, race. But something that they were able to do, it was just, they were able to have a diverse cast and it not be a big deal. It was just, we have a diverse cast because this is what it looks like. That's it. And it becomes like a like a bit of a plot issue towards the end, but even that, like barely. So it, it can be done and it can be done well. You know, if you want to tell these stories, tell it in a meaningful way. And I think that Greta, she did a really wonderful job of making... Um, like today's version of this still white centric but like I think she she did a good job in in like aging these kids up and um fixing that weird relationship between Joe and Friedrich and like the the age gap that used to be between them was disgusting um really fixed those hey, you mean between Winona and uh uh I just said his name oh my god Dave, whatever. Oh my, Gabriel Byrne. Oh my God, that's my favorite part. Oh my God, Christine. The age gap is so nasty. I fucking love Gabriel Byrne. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, no, no. I, I'll yeah, have no. to revisit it and be like, maybe this is wrong, but <laughs> I can't. I can't lie. <laughs> that's okay. But anyway, she fixes some things, but can still always do better. So as as with anything. That's really what I wanted to talk about when it comes to Little Women, just, you know, Greta Gerwig's vision, feminism, and and centering whiteness. But is there anything else, Connor? We have not brought up our boy, Timothy Chalamet. Ugh. <laughs> at all. Um, I, I thought that was him. cool. I think this is the first Timothy Chalamet movie I've ever seen. I know that we've talked about him quite a bit on and off air. I don't I think th I've ever seen him in a movie till now. Um. And I thought it was interesting how he is one of like the linchpin figures who all the sisters live, most of the sisters lives revolve around. And so I thought, you know, just to touch on him briefly of, I thought that was an interesting use of like, 
character serving plot to like how you see how he interacts with Joe and how Beth feels, you know, and how Amy feels about him. Like, I thought that was a super interesting and bringing his grandfather into it. Like, I thought that was you know, a cool element that I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Well, you know what? Something that's really cool, Connor. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that Lori, Timothy Chalamet, is probably almost a carbon copy of Christian Bale in the 94 version. That's how I felt. I felt like, oh, uh, he's just doing the same. Like, they kind of look alike. Um, he's just doing the same thing. I loved the details with, um, what's Meg's husband? John? John? Mm-hmm. John uh, there's this moment where, because you're supposed to see John is kind of sensitive, you know, he's just like, he's just like a nice guy. But there's this moment where he says something like, oh, well, that's what ladies must do. Something, some like, assumption about like ladylike behavior or like a woman's place is in the home or something like that and then like one of the sisters like fire I think it's probably Joe who's like fires back at him he's like oh oh yeah 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 no that's that's a good perspective too it's just like a great like dude trying some like thing out and then being totally shot down and then being like oh yeah 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 I love the greenhouse That was a moment, too. The only thing I feel like the 94 version does better is the piano surprise. So in the 94 version, it's like right around Christmas. um, Beth comes home and the entire home is decorated. And the the piano is right there. And I, I just, I cry at that point because Beth hadn't had anything really good happen to her. And it was really toned down in this film. And I think, you know, I think that fits for, for what the story was. But it was an interesting choice. And I was like, nobody's like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe there are people like that. <laughs> the slippers she makes are so cute. Um, um, I have some thoughts just about the like brass tacks of the film, the production. Because um, there's so much about this movie that really set me back. And I think really, uh, it, it some ways functions, you know, perfectly as a period piece. I mean, the, the as we touched on briefly before, the costumage, uh, costuming is fantastic. The wardrobe is like to die for it's incredible and it, it really if if that was their intention to make it you know enviable in modern standards there were plenty of timothy chalamet jackets there i was like ooh, i'd like to wear that one um but also just how completely immersive all the set design is and all the all the uh all, all the scenic locations and it just feels really uh it, it really transports you to to its setting and to its you know frame of reference in this historical context um it's got a really fantastic use of like light and atmosphere. Uh, Sam, as you mentioned before, like the distinction between uh, within the linear timeline of past and present uh, delineated and explained a lot by like saturation or light or like palette, um, which actually kind of reminds me a lot of big fish, uh, yeah. not for nothing. Um, also the use of slow-mo, like, I, I mean, slow-mo in a period piece, uh, I'm normally like, Oh, it's something at odds with like a, you know, a historical, historical frame, uh, historical story having that flair of like modern cinematography and so on. Just the slow-mo stuff kind of brings me out of a lot of historic period pieces and things like that. But here I think it's like refreshingly tasteful and actually like perfectly used because it's used pretty sparingly and only to highlight certain things. Um, 
So yeah, just on the whole, I think I mean every I think everyone's performance in this movie is really good. I think the the technical design and production design and everything really lends it uh, a unique look, despite being you know a period piece that has been you know re- represented many many times throughout film. Um, having not seen any of the other ones, I mean this one, I, I've not seen quite quite seen a period piece that handles cinematography quite in the way that this movie does let alone screenwriting. So in, in that sense, I think the production and direction is really unique and really refreshing. I would love to see a Lord of the Rings style five hour behind the scenes documentary about like the process of making this movie from like script to filming. Like I think that would yeah. be fascinating. I think you can also tell um, the type of atmosphere. I don't know what went behind on behind the production. Maybe they all hate each other, but I certainly believe that all performers in scenes were just having such a good time, uh, especially the scenes where uh, the March sisters are putting on the, the performances. You can see, like, I, I don't want to hate on Emma Watson. Her performance is fine or whatever. But, like, there's a moment where she's getting a mustache put on her face and you can really see her laughing. And I... In that moment, I was like, she's probably laughing at the moment. And like, I think Gerwig had really captured the magic of like the friendships, the camaraderie that probably was like happening in the energy of that room in the attic. She also filmed uh, at least parts of it in the real March house. That's like the real house in Massachusetts, um, which was was great uh, on location shooting. One thing is, maybe my eyes deceive me, but did Timothy Chalamet have CGI legs in the ice skating scene? <laughs> Can someone like maybe later on rewatch that scene? Because I swear, both times in the theaters, I was like, she did not CGI those legs. And then I rewatched it hoping that it wasn't. But Is this like the 2020 be- version of Is the Snow Real or Timothy Ch- Chalamet's legs real? I think this should be a new theme because I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh god wow that was the only production thing i perceive <laughs> um, when, when i see dune whenever dune comes out that's gonna be the first thing i think of whenever <laughs> oh my god Ooh. that oh, just sent my soul i <laughs> i don't know rewatch it and tell me prove me wrong please because um, one other really quick thing, I guess, that that really struck me as far as like the editing and style of this movie was taking the time to have characters when their their letters are being read by other characters, um, ra- rather than like a voiceover of the character reading it, it. It's just a hard cut to an almost like monologue, like center frame style version of them dictating the letter they've written, which I thought was like, I don't know, I, I've not seen something like that in a period piece before. It was really striking. It was a great stylistic choice and also really funny. And I think that's where Gerwig really shines is like she can handle the choreographed position moments of a period piece, but she can throw in things that are so odd. And you're like, I can roll, like I can, I can, I can see that. And it's, yeah, it's funny. The dancing scene on the outside on the floorboards is so beautiful. So good. So good. Yeah, it's got a real freshness to it. 
Well, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you all so much. Um, I hope now everyone can see why I picked this to be in my top 20. Um, I think it has to be up there with my some of my favorite movies of all time. So thanks for a great conversation. Um, in like vintage butter with that style, uh, we <laughs> all took a BuzzFeed character quiz of which March sister we are. And I am so excited to find out who everyone got. So who would like- Was it just the March sisters? Well, based on that question, Dave, it makes me wonder if you got somebody outside. The uh, I was just curious. I don't know. We'll find out, I suppose. Sorry. <laughs> um, so who would like to go first? Go ahead, Connor. I can go first. This is, uh, you know, I took it right before we started this episode. I predicted I would get Amy. I got Amy. <laughs> um, just like Amy, you are loyal and could end up with your first love. That's true. Uh, you are confident and proud, willing to defend yourself against anyone. You're always up for a good time. You're willing to take one for the team and do its best for the interests of everyone. Um, nice. I also got Amy, but first of all, that makes sense. Second of all, um, there's a reason why I defend her so like to the death. <laughs> um, but this this has a different description, Connor. This says, um, like the youngest March sister, you have a fiery spirit and may be a bit spoiled at times, but you have a heart of gold. You know what you want in life and you're not afraid to go for your dreams, even if you break a few hearts along the way. Oh, my the quiz I took says which little women sister best represents your soul? <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> okay. Is that also on BuzzFeed? Yeah. December 28th, 2019. Is the one I did. I take? Oh. Interesting. Okay. You guys get to share the, I think, the funniest line in the movie. I owe ever so many limes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whole limes thing. Um, well, the result that I got from um, this character quiz was uh, Beth March. Oh. <laughs> so I gotta, you know, watch. We gotta watch my temperature and everything. Um, the description here is: uh, your personality matches Beth. You're practical, compassionate, and responsible. Like Beth, you're a protector. Uh, it takes you a little while to open up to new people. Once you do, though, uh, they become friends for life. Uh, while you have a close circle of friends, you're often happiest to spend some quiet time by yourself, which uh, tracks. So. <laughs> Well, Dave, good news. You already definitely beat Beth's age. So, hey, congratulations. I'm doing better than I were in 1850-something, which is uh, a small comfort these days. I also got Beth, but I did not get that description. I like that description way better than what I got. And I didn't do the BuzzFeed whose soul have you possessed or whatever. Weird. Yeah. It's... Gentle soul beyond your years, sweet demeanor. <laughs> you got a pair of Amy's and a pair of Beth's. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder what Tori would have gotten. Mm. There, when I was taking this quiz, and I took a similar one um, for gosh, when we were watching it over the the weekend, and it was like by PBS, which was weird. Um, and when I got Amy, I was like, well, well, yeah, like Amy makes sense. And, but there was a part of me that was like dreading if I got Joe, 
And we were like trying <laughs> to decide who was who, like in our group. And and none of us said anyone was Joe. And I thought that was really interesting. Joe kind of exists, I feel like, on her own plane, like her own fictional character plane of existence. I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we've got some of the marches Wait, down. Oh, one, sorry, you. I just thought of something that we were talking about, like Joe imposing her own standards on everyone else. I do love the scene, though, when she uh, so heroically and bravely cuts her hair for money to give to Marnie for the, or to send to the father. And she's like, it's for you. Just a sacrifice. And then later she's crying by the fire and Amy's like, what's wrong? And Joe is like, my hair. And it's just such a wonderful like breakdown of that facade where she has some like attachment to her like physical set. Like there is this recognition that like, whether it's from vanity or just from attachment to like physical, you know, presence or whatever. It's just like, I lost my hair, which you think would be something that would like another sister would say. But I, I, I think that moment is so, is so interesting. It's like, Joe, check your standard. You're like, you aren't just who you think you are. Not that bad of a cut either. It looked great. Yeah. But yeah. Awesome conversation about one of my favorite movies. Um, thank you all so, so much for participating and for the listeners. Thank you for listening. Um, send us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Talk to us on our Instagram or on our Facebook. Um, other things to shout out, Tori always writes for Movie John, formerly Cinema 76. So check out what she's been writing lately. Anything else? Watch Little Women. Do it. Mm -hmm. It's on stars if you have it. Well, that's all she wrote, folks. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>